So you remember the thing about Pam? You asked me, was I familiar with the case? Right. And I said, no. So I went in there blind, but it was pretty easy to understand what happened. This, I do remember partly what happened yeah, a few years ago. Back in 2014. Back in 2014, um, I do remember that there was a girl who kind of coerced her boyfriend into committing suicide. And I think she was convicted, but I don't remember for sure. Um, and the show doesn't go through that yet? The show doesn't go through the trial. They're approaching the prosecution at this point, and they're deciding whether or not they want to bring the case. They think they might be able to prove manslaughter, but the trick is that they have to prove that it wasn't assisted suicide. Because if it's assisted suicide, there's nothing saying that that's illegal in Massachusetts. Right. But, like, did it start back in 2007? Because it spans seven years. 2007? No, 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 no. Oh, where does it start? Okay, so we're given the timeline of 2012 and 2014. Okay. 2014 is when he actually commits suicide. Right, that was when it actually happened. So when you say 2007, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, the show is supposed to span seven years. So I was wondering if it was supposed to be something I think it goes to 2019, doesn't it? To 2019, okay. So 2012 to 2019. Where's 2007 from? I'm still on... Because 2014 is when the event happened, so I thought seven years prior to that was 2007. No, the two main characters don't even meet until 2012. Oh, okay. Uh, So the show's name is The Girl from Plainville... First episode is 43 minutes. We're talking about the first three episodes. It's on Hulu. Uh, it's rated MA. And um, it's your basic true crime show. So that it was just like It's based average. on real events. It's got some fictionalized drama thrown in there. Right. It's supposed to be surreal, right, in some instances. What do you mean by surreal? Like there's, there's a song and dance number that happens, at least in this, or it's supposed to happen. She sings to herself in the mirror because she's obsessed with Glee. And then... There's a moment where they're texting where it's shown them just talking to one another. Like they're on right. a basketball court. And instead of showing the text message conversation, I thought it was effective in that in that way. That it was reminded in the last me, episode. When I read about that, it reminded me of the Key and Peele sketch almost. Like kind of taking completely out of that because the inflection. It's just a different way to show a conversation that doesn't rely on the audience having to just read a ton. Mm-hmm. But in that first episode, you also get this mental health disclaimer that starts off the episode. Right. So I, again, didn't know anything about this show until I kind of realized about 10 minutes in, oh, it's that case. You know? Oh, okay. So, but did you ever see um, the actual Michelle Carter? Like what she looked like? I think so. She doesn't look like Ellie Fanning. It, it is Ellie Fanning, right? It is Ellie Fanning. And Ellie Fanning's from Super 8. That's where I've seen her yeah, before. Yeah, that was right? her breakout role. And when I was thinking about Super 8, I was like... That came out before Stranger Things, but the characters involved are very similar to the characters in Stranger Things. Yeah, well, this is a little off topic, but that I always yeah. I think the reason for that is because Stranger Things and Super Eight were both kind of paying homage to the Steven Spielberg ETS type. They both took place in the eighties. Yeah, coming out back. But then. that young love, that kind of like childhood romance type thing between the two of yeah. It's okay. weird you say that Ellie Fanning doesn't look like Michelle uh, Carter because a lot of people say that it was dead on. My memory of this isn't the best. I, I didn't pay a ton of attention to it, but I thought that she was shorter, that her eyes were a little bit a bigger. I don't know, though. There's there's no accent, right? It's not like it's not like. Before. Oh, no. Like our, all these other shows that <laughs> yeah. we've been doing where they've had a corny accent. No, right. but the episodes are like different in that the first episode seems to paint a light for Michelle Carter as this demonic figure okay you're right and then episode two tries to humanize her so they both sides it no but they make it seem like in the first episode 
that she is a psychopath, that she does not have any feelings other than she wants people to sympathize for her and like her. Because not only is it clear that she's covering up all the evidence that would show her having any presence in the boyfriend's uh, state of mind Conrad to Roy. kill her, yeah, to exactly. kill himself, but she's also like guilt tripping people all the time. She's trying to push her way into the grieving people's family. She's trying to like, she is about the thing about pamming it where she like shows up at the family's doorstep oh, and being okay. like, you're going to include me in this because I was his love, the love of his life, even though her parents and his parents really had no idea that they were even in a relationship. Well, I Love You Now Die kind of did the same thing. It was a two-part documentary based on the same series came out in 2019 on HBO, where the first part kind of showed it from Conrad Roy's perspective and his family, and then the second part showed it from kind of the Michelle Carter, the whole case that... You like, don't see Conrad's real perspective until episode two. You use Conrad's perspective to humanize her. Oh, really? Yeah. So, okay, that's that's interesting. So the first episode's called Star-Crossed Lovers and things like that. Every episode title is based on a line that usually Michelle Carter has said. Mm -hmm. But, like, in the third episode, I think Never Have I Ever is said by one of her friends. Is that, like, a game they play? But, like, uh, yeah, in, in the third episode. Star-Crossed Lovers and things like that, it's almost a teller in that it's so cavalier. Like, it's, like, and things like that, you know? Right, yeah. Like, like usually Star-Crossed you, Lovers is, is pretty intense. But and then, then you just throw, like, this last yeah, thing Yeah, so there. the things we learn about um, Michelle really early on is that she's from the rich part of town. Her parents are completely unaware that she's in a relationship. She has a sister. She likes the um, book Fault in Our Stars. They show that on purpose. <laughs> John and Green. That's, well, it romanticizes death. Yeah. And it also is a teenage love story. So from my perspective, I'm like, okay, this is a girl who is kind of in her own delusion that has really put a focus on wanting to almost recreate what she's read in this book. I agree with what you said, but you said that this takes place in 2012, right? 20, 2014 is when it takes place. So that would have been like a couple of years right after the movie came out, I think, also. Or right when the movie came out, I think. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just saying that, like, yeah, timelines. Yeah, she's also super melodramatic, as I hinted before. She's constantly uh, guilt-tripping people. And she's made her own alibi by sending her friends a bunch of text messages over the course of the last few days of Conrad's life, being like, I'm really worried about him. Where is he? Mm, Things like that. Okay. Um, very similar to the thing about Pam, where she's doing the opposite, where she's creating an alibi that says, what's her, Karen was alive? Yeah, um, right. I, I remember that. At the time, right before she she murdered her. The thing is, is that I know that the showrunners were able to give Ellie Fanning, like, the actual text messages. They had to, like, go to, like, I think the actual government and get the text messages because they were locked up, but they were actually able to do it. So that conversation that you were talking about earlier was probably the actual text messages that were sent. Yeah, I, we get a lot of text messages throughout this thing. And they also refer to the text messages constantly. The detective is the person who starts seeing this as a very suspicious kind of motive behind uh, Michelle and Conrad's conversations. He's able to collect over, like, huge box fulls of printed document text messages. Right. And he's, like, read through them all. And most of them are just kind of, like, teenage gobble-gobble gook, you know? <laughs> and then at the very end of it, though, it starts getting really, like, she's pressuring him. She's coercing him. She's encouraging in, him. In what way? Like, is he just saying that she's he wants to... She's just feeding his depression, almost, and saying, you gotta do this. If You're never gonna do it unless you do it right now. Wow. Like, get back in the car. This comes back to what all these shows tend to do, all these true crime shows tend to do. They give us the ending right at the start. They tell us what's gonna happen. They kind of 
show the character in its full light. So over the course of these episodes, I'm not really learning anything that essential that I couldn't have just pieced together from episode one. And that's why I don't really appreciate or like these shows now. Mm. That I'm starting to just get sick of them. Um, and it's not because of the production. It's not because of the quality of the acting. It's not because of even the writing. It's more just, I have seen this, it's predictable. And 10 minutes in, I just got this sinking feeling as I'm like, she's clearly just a monster in disguise. In episode two, it's a bit of a reprieve, as I said, because in 2012, when they showed Conrad and Michelle first meeting boyfriend and girlfriend away in Florida, they're a happy set. They, <laughs> they, they actually connect. And I'm like, for what happened to Michelle over the course of those two years that broke her and made her so vindictive or uh, like, I don't know how to describe her. She is a head case. They're both they both on medication. She's like supposed to be taking Prozac. Or, yes, antidepressants. Yeah. But with her, she legitimately seemed to like him in 2012. And in the first episode, we see her going through every length possible to, to try to manipulate people. Even at the end, she's giving a fake speech that she's just copying from Glee because the guy who died in Glee, right? Um, they did that special episode with him. The this is the part that felt a little creepy because I was like, "That's a real thing that happened." And in the show, they're fictionalizing the thing that happened. Yeah. That was the one. Well, that was my main question about the show. It, it seemed like they were sensationalizing it. I saw a review where someone, where like kind of the interviewer kept asking because they had like the main cast there if that's what they were doing, and they were like, "No, no, no, we don't want to try and like stigmatize this or, or you know do anything like that." We're like, we're actually trying to give a lot of like respect to the actual thing that happened. Like for example they went to conrad roy's mother to just kind of like get her side of the story yeah yeah lynn roy she's the divorced mom both families michelle's and conrad's conrad the third because his dad's named conrad and then his dad's dad's named conrad um they're both kind of dysfunctional in different ways but conrad's family is is just tough love a little bit Um, like his dad isn't a terrible dad but he definitely wasn't there like he gets mad at him super easily he never actually hits him but you can see that why yeah, like Conrad ditches his sister at one point to go hang out with Michelle when they first meet in Florida. And then when Conrad comes home from this really fun night that he had with Michelle, then his dad just gets, grills him about the fact that he left his sister alone, that he mm-hmm. ditched his sister, which technically as a parent, I don't know what you do in that situation because it's like, yeah, you do want to kind of get mad at your, that she's the younger sister. He needed to be there, but he took it really hard. Like, like harder than he should have like angry hard like he just starts bawling and then his sister comes in to try to console him and he just yells at her and it's like clearly this guy is depressed he he doesn't like going to school he's been working on the boat with his dad um his prior relationships kind of were online and even those ones got messed up because the parents of the person he was dating online didn't want to talk to him he already tried to commit suicide in the third episode we see his first attempt Um, At the very end of the episode, Um, he's taking the Tylenol out. Um, And then this... So, yeah, like... You got the... But, like, did the backstory work? Because I know that... Yeah, it works fine. I know that Colton Ryan said that what he was kind of disappointed about was that right as he got the role, what he did was he went to the Wikipedia page just to for, like, the very first thing to see what it was about. And the Wikipedia page... Colton Ryan Conrad? 
Uh, yeah, Colton Ryan is, is yeah, yeah. Uh, Conrad Roy. When we got to the Wikipedia page, it just said the death of Conrad Roy. It didn't actually say, like, much about, like, the fact that he was an actual person. So his and name... the death is tough, too, because it happens five minutes away from his house. Apparently, he had hung out with his mom. That day, he took his Ford, drove in front of, or drove behind, I guess, a Kmart parked with a water pump in the back. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a generator at first. Turned it on, kept the windows closed, and the button that makes sure that there's no like um, air coming in from the outside, and just kind of like dozes off. That Is that way. how they started? Carbon off? monoxide poisoning, I assume, or something. Yeah, y- yeah, it's sort of the breaking of events. The way they started off is just a text message chain um, over the Ronettes playing "Be My Baby." <laughs> so you get the three, uh, the three dot type yeah. thing. And at that time, for some reason, I thought I had cracked the case, and that she had switched phones with him. I thought one was texting that uh, Michelle was texting from Conrad's phone, and then later on we um, saw them flip, but that wasn't the case. I realized I it was, was, just, it, was wrong. Just, it was just actually but, a text message chain. But yeah, it was interesting seeing the old phones because I feel like phones are used the same way cars were used back in the day to date something. Yeah, like as soon as you Especially see now. the age like, of a smartphone, the you're generation able to tell. of an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because her. Hers is sort of a BlackBerry mix, like where you have you can flip it out and like type on it as well, and then you can also close it. Down. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> the death was really preventable. It seems like it wasn't until the second episode, though, when we start seeing Michelle actually cry over the fact that her Conrad was dead. Before that, we'd seen her sort of melodramatic, fake crying. In episode two, we see her kind of get like a flash of all the times they'd hung out together and even a flash forward to something we hadn't seen, which was actually interesting. Yeah. And then she just starts crying. And then that makes her text one of her friends, Natalie, um, exactly what she did, which she was like, I could have stopped him. I told him to get out of the car. And I was like, there you have so it. So she actually that's, admits it. Yeah. That's, that's the, the thing that, that the prosecutors are going to use to nab her. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Elle Fanning said that the main weapon in this show are phones. So, like, when you're talking about yeah. the different type of phones and they everything. They got a warrant for her phone and her computer and anything connected yeah, to the internet. That, that's the main thing. I know that they also shot it in Georgia really fast. Do you know where Colton Ryan is from, where you've seen him before? No. He was the main role, yeah, at least kind of one of the main roles, Samuel in Little Voice. He was also in uh, Homeland, J.J. Elkins, for, like, three episodes and one wait, episode. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Little Voice... Unless he was the Down Syndrome brother, I don't think I remember seeing him. Oh, okay. Um, but he in this thing, I, at first I was like, oh, no, he's way overaged for this part. And then later on, he actually does sound like a kid. So I was like, oh, no. That is, Did he sound, sound, sound like a kid? Well, like, I was able to see him more as a kid. But the first mm-hmm. second you see him, he looks like he's 25. <laughs> so it does take a moment. I think, um, I think he is around 25 or, like, 26. He plays, He. I'm saying the acting's okay. The show does remind me a little bit of Cruel Summer. It doesn't do the stark difference between like depressed now versus or like the light coloring mm-hmm. for like a happier time in the f- past, but it does go to the past a lot to show um, the happy and the sad and what kind of drove thing. What we still aren't aware of though is Michelle's motive, and I think that's what they're getting at. We did learn in the last episode, uh, <laughs> Aya Cash, who's just been showing up in everything. She was from You're the Worst, The Boys, Welcome to Flash. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she shows up. She's going to be the prosecuting attorney who wants to be DA at one point, and she's the one who the detective has really relayed all the information of because at first it's just Detective Gordon um, questioning Ellie. Which it takes, or sorry, like yeah, you mean Michelle. Michelle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by now, I think it's kind of taking that shift over to the trial process oh, because okay. the parents are now like, hey, why did the police just come in and take your computer and stuff? Like they're starting to be worried too. And apparently, um, I thought that 
uh, Michelle's parents were going to be a huge motivating factor as to why she turned out the way she did because they were so absent in her life. They were like, you had a boyfriend when she... <laughs> so, when... so they really don't know that much. But, but that said, like, her boyfriend actually lived an hour away. We get this character named Rob. He was Conrad's best friend, right? Mm -hmm. And Rob was really helpful. He's probably my favorite character because his interview with the cop, which was only like five minutes long, actually gave us a ton of good information being like, oh, of course the parents wouldn't realize that her, their daughter would... They, they only met twice in real life. Conrad right, yeah, and, right, right. and Michelle. Does that actually happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is more of a long distance relationship. And Rob actually seemed legitimately like upset about his friend. And he is giving Michelle a lot of rope. But yeah, I think the best actor out of all of this is Rob. <laughs> well, I, I'm not... Or who you'd want as a real friend. He reminds me of sort of Jeff from The 13 Reasons Why. He's, he's just the guy <laughs> in his corner. Well, Jeff was just funny, though. <laughs> yeah, but Conrad also went to parties and stuff where he, where, when he was trying to get back in with the high school crowd mm -hmm. after spending so much time on the boat. And Rob was clearly the popular dude who was just hanging out. Also, like, uh, Michelle's friend, Natalie, is also sort of the popular girl who wouldn't normally um, be falling for Michelle's kind of crap that she's spewing but because of this whole like death that's happened right. um she feels like it's she's also like the um effortlessly extroverted uh but still down to earth character like Nat a shoulder Natalie a shoulder to cry on no not that like she wouldn't normally be friends with michelle but she feels really bad for her but like in a genuine manner so now the best friends of both the characters are seem like really neat people and that's what makes it extra sad. I Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, like, the best scenes were kind of, like, maybe the interrogation scene and that they're shifting towards a trial because one of the creators of the show, Patrick McManus, was all, also worked on Dr. Death. And then, um, yeah, and Liz Hanna, though, I think is, like, kind of the main creator. And she's someone who's been able to get, like, directors like Lisa Cholodenko, who's worked on, like, Oscar-worthy films, like The Kids Are All Right mm -hmm. as well. And, oh, uh, I, I mean, his dad, Conrad's, Conrad II, I guess, is also famous. He was from Bloodline. Oh, yeah, no, that you have also, like, Chloe Savini, uh, who played Lynn Roy. She's from Zodiac. She's, she's also, also been, from Bloodline. <laughs> yeah, she's she's been at a ton of, like, independent things. So they were able to get the cast for this pretty well. And I know that, like, it took uh, Elle Fanning in terms of, like, makeup and artists. They were able to get, like, the best of them, again, to make it spot on. Uh, it doesn't look like she's wearing much makeup. She's just a kid. Like, again, she is believably 18. Yeah, well, yeah. But do they ever reference bulimia at all? Is yeah, that so okay. it, they only do it slightly here. Um, at the third In the third episode, her parents are grilling her about the fact that uh, the police were just there. And she's like, you don't understand me. And she starts going into her Glee speech, but her sister calls her out on it. She's like, that's from Glee. She, and so she like episode. runs. So yeah, so she runs to her room and then she just starts like eating all these Oreos. Uh. So like that was kind of the first hint at it. And you knew that she had psychological issues before this and not clearly. Uh, but but. There are a lot of characters in this that I'm kind of like not mentioning. You have uh, David and Hayden and Cassie and Sid and Riley. And Cassie and Sid? Like skins? Yeah, it is like that. <laughs> Paige. Um, some of them are families. Chris, Brad. Uh, it's a ton of people. Ruth. Point is, there's also this character named Susie. And at first, Susie's been messaging with um, Michelle this whole time, but Michelle hasn't been getting back to her. And in the third episode, we finally realize Susie's not like a therapist. Susie is actually her best friend before Natalie. Um, and they and were. Did they lose connection? No, she, Susie, I think, is lesbian. And she was hoping to have a relationship with mm -hmm. Michelle or something. And there must have been a fallout. But. Something about that precipitated the fact that Michelle, I think, 
went nuts here and kind of like coerced her boyfriend into into killing himself but we just aren't aware what it is the reason i'm bringing that up though is because i think that susie is going to be tied in with all the mental distress somehow and uh it's just that's the type of trickle of information or the information that we're receiving now it's less about what the end game is because i think everybody's sort of aware what's what's going to happen but just sort of the why it's trying to answer for you I don't know if it's ever going to get there, though, because even now I said the first episode painted her like a demon and it was very hard to see any way of making her redeemable. The second episode just makes it still makes her irredeemable. It just makes you wonder what happened between 2012 and 2014, which could have caused her so much anguish that she would not care about forcing her boyfriend isn't that where the mystery comes in though like isn't that what makes it like interesting this is real life though and it's it's i get what you're saying if you're really into true crime you'll love it if if you're not though well no no i I, if you're sick of it then you won't so i'm guessing you're not gonna watch the rest of the series i do like mysteries and i probably will not watch the rest of the series no but after three episodes of watching anything i feel like you do feel a certain amount of gravitation towards like hey what's gonna happen next it's gonna be eight episodes and it's only gonna be a limited series the second episode's called turtle by the way um (laughs) And again, it has to do with their background meeting in Florida. But the reason it's called Turtle is because when they first uh, hang out after dark, um, they're both having trouble sleeping. And she's like, I have this trick to help you sleep. You just randomly name uh, words uh, that come together until you get kind of bore yourself to sleep. And then they start doing Almost it like together. Almost like Bo Burnham bit, like where he just made, he's like talking about random sentences that just go together. Yeah, like, you know. yeah, yeah. And then they start riffing one off uh, each other, kind of improving it until they kind of realize that it's like, girl, pretty, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Kiss, blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. until they're... Yeah, I know. I know that Elf Annie, because you mentioned the Glee thing a couple of times. She watched that over and over and over again. Even had it down to the time where the actual actress, uh, like, was blinking. So she was like blinking during the scene. Like, she made sure to like memorize that scene, which I found just a little there bit. There have been odd. several <laughs> scenes that copied that format, though, because she's staring at herself in the mirror, trying to memorize the Glee scene, and then at one point she's singing out the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then the well, next yeah. episode you get the same thing from Conrad. He's also singing out the Glee. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but he is looking at the mirror and he's kind of like hyping himself up. They use mirrors a lot and these people are staring at themselves a lot. (laughs) I don't know if that's a device or if they heard that the characters did that in real life. Um, I think, I think it might just be for the audience because I know that the writers, it did did feel kind of, the writers did say that they did have to make some of it up just to make narrative sense or to like add some stuff to the plot, which again, you always have to kind of be like cautious about what you're actually watching when you're doing a true crime thing like this. Um, I know that Elle Fanning said that a lot of times on set that like it was kind of heavy. And so I guess a song and dance number that's going to be coming up later on because you haven't mentioned it in the episode. She said was like the funnest day that they had on set. Um, the Daily Beast said something that I was interested in because when I heard this, I was like, yeah, this is going to be another thing about Pam, Pam or uh, true crime you know series they said i thought that I was going to be exhausted by the genre ready to dismiss it with the exasperation as last month's we crashed but uh they ended up saying that they we crash is just another startup show and right. so it's either true crime 
podcast uh, recreations or startup show. If you had started this thing being like, this is based off the podcast that came out two years ago, I would have been like, yes, of course it is. Well, I, I think that it's loosely based off an article. But going back to the Daily Beast, they said that they really enjoyed it because they didn't feel like it was that. And it seems like every other article has said that same exact thing. They were like, we thought that it was going to be something else, but because it was different, we kind of enjoyed it. It's better than the thing about Pam. It's, uh, it, it's perfectly produced fine like that. I would give it a 5 out of 10 because I don't want to watch that, yeah. more shows like this. But for someone who, again, is into this, mm-hmm. probably a 7, 8 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, the all, all three episodes have like a mid-7s. It has a 6.8 on IMDb, but a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And a, uh, it just seems if like... If it was a, just a standalone thing and, there, and you were to ignore all the ether and the context right. around uh, how, how often we're getting these pumped out, then yeah. People thought Cara Delevingne would have been a good pick for this. Yes, she would look like the. That's who. When I think of that character, I think it was her. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, yeah, yeah, I know. I think she probably looks a little bit more like the the killer than this person does. Right. Yeah. It's weird though because when they did say the thing about the assisted suicide, that was the first time it even came to mind that she could be proven innocent, because that is basically what she did. This guy was already depressed before he met her. And then she kind of aided slash coerced him into doing it. So how do you f- try her for manslaughter? Especially, she wasn't a minor when it happened. She was 18. They make a big deal. But was oh, she, she wasn't a minor? I thought she was. Maybe she was. But she was 18 by the time the cop interviewed her, at mm-hmm. least. As I said, there are so many characters. And you don't have to mention them all. But the nice thing about having uh, Lynn's character there and having um, the detective there is that as the audience, a lot of the time when you're watching someone get away with something, you get mad at the rest of the characters for not understanding what's going on. Um, because you're like, in real life, they, well, no, Lynn is clearly got a guard up from the beginning, but that's just her personality. Like, she's just like, how did my son do this? I thought I'd been asking him. I thought mm-hmm. that we were close. One big thing that the son didn't do that was impactful, like emotionally, was that he left everybody a suicide note. Like he left his dad a suicide note. He left Michelle a suicide note. But the mom found him and she couldn't find one for herself. Oh. And so he felt really bad for her as she was running through the, the, the room trying to find them. Um, yeah. That is sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, but her, her kind of um, edge that she has to her is nice to see in a character like this because you it's not often that you do um and if that's her personality in real life good for her that she didn't just buy into this girl who randomly says that she was dating her son and then the the detective it's weird because like you see shows like unbelievable and the detectives are shown to be just inadequate like terrible people who are looking to just um, find someone guilty for something he seems like he's pretty good at his job but it is clear michelle is going to need to get a good lawyer because that is what's coming up right now. Yeah. And um, the, the only other thing is, like, Natalie, when she gets that text, at the end of episode two, when Michelle just straight up confesses <laughs> um, in that text message, being like, I could have stopped him, I thought the next time that we'd see Natalie and her, it was a super awkward conversation that happened in the library of the high school, because it, basically there was just this vibe. But Natalie was not supportive, but... I guess she was as supportive as you could be in that instance. Like, she was like, I am asking about you. Are you okay? Of Michelle support, yeah. Yeah. And what I would think that that would have turned her against her. Like, she... It doesn't mean she would have crossed the line. Yeah. Just receiving that text message must have been scary. Uh, Again, the best friends here, Rob and Natalie, um, I feel the worst for them. But also, like, think, wow, these are kind of 
cool human beings for for kids. So that's basically all I've got on yeah, the show. Yeah, uh, only thing else I have to say is that it was like, given a straight to series order. Cool. So it's it's a minute it's a limited series. Limited though. series, yeah. So it's not going to go another season. No. Well, that'll be it for now. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. See you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.